Rejoice, for the end of the world is here. It's a strange thing. You don't hear that paired together. And it, it always makes me chuckle. I saw a few of you chuckled too. I can see you out there, you know. And uh, verse 18 where it says, And so with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. Right? And that's right after the section that reads, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Rejoice, for the end of the world is almost here. You don't hear street preachers preach like that, do you? You hear them talk about the end of the world as it's a terrible thing, right? At least I have. But it's actually a joyful thing. Leah and I have been watching uh, this series. You're probably familiar with it. We're always late to the game on these things called The Chosen. Has anybody been watching The Chosen? It's a really good series. I commend it to you. Um... Of course, there's things in it that are artistic license and backstory that's not quite backed up by Scripture and things, but it looks at the disciples and as Jesus as real people. Um, and it does so faithfully, I think. One of the things that the show does really well is to show the historical oppression of God's chosen people. If you get to any of the episodes with the Romans, particularly the, um, the um, Roman, I can't remember what his rank is, Praetor, I think, of um, Capernaum, you see the Romans have this contempt for the Jews, a complete indifference to their suffering, right? And then you go to the religious lead- leaders and you see the Pharisees and the other Jewish leaders who offer nothing more to God's people. Enforcing rules made up by them and not actually God's law. And not helping people to be holy, but rather causing people to suspect them and fall away. But the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ, and those words both mean the Anointed One, is repeatedly greeted by those that run into it who follow Jesus with great joy. O come, O come, Emmanuel. They, they, they passionately embody that as Mary Magdalene, for example, or Peter, or any of the disciples come into contact with Jesus. The Messiah is here. So it goes. The Messiah is here. He has come through He has made good on His promise. Again, the end of the world is at hand. Rejoice! And they're rejoicing because the world in which they inhabit stinks. It's full of oppression. It's full of suffering. It's full of religious leaders that oppress them in addition to the secular leaders. Too often, Christians, I find don't understand the freedom from oppression that we have. They don't understand the promise that the Messiah has made good on, that Jesus has made good on, and is making good on even in our lives today, and of course will make good on completely at the consummation of the kingdom of God. You know, I think there's two reasons for this. Just offhand. 
Number one, we live in the remnants of a Judeo-Christian culture that's adopted and codified much of what Jesus has taught. We don't even realize that. You go to any other place in the world, and you will realize that. That there's a lot in our, in our law, even, and in our culture, that is Judeo-Christian. Even so, right? Even so now. But secondly, and perhaps more to the point, is that we do not see clearly enough the reality of Jesus. We do not see clearly enough the reality of the Messiah and the kingdom that he brings. There's a famous quotation from C.S. Lewis. He writes in his collected sermons uh, books, The Weight of Glory. He says this, he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased with the crappy world that we inhabit without the Lord. Now, the Hebrew people's history has been one of great oppression of one sort or another. And so this contrast was much more marked to them. Slavery for 400 years was their fate in Egypt. Their freedom, of course, is a major focus of their religion. The Jews focus on the Passover, right? of the Lord bringing them through the Red Sea out of slavery. That's one of their core feasts. And then, of course, they go on to be exiled after that. The Jews were taken by force or just outright killed by the Assyrian first and then the Persian empires. And then for the 400 years between their coming back to their homeland and Jesus coming, they're the political pawns of various empires, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies and the Romans, right? There's always somebody looming in the background oppressing them politically, oppressing them on many levels. And the Jews, as God's people, therefore eagerly await Zephaniah's prophecy. Look with me at the first reading today. Zephaniah chapter 3, starting with verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. For most people, this was something to hold on to for over 400 years. Very reasonably, oftentimes, those that interpret this passage, the Jews, rather, that interpret this passage pay special attention to the first part of that prophecy and not to the second part. What's the first part of the prophecy? Look at verse 15 again. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. 
I'm sorry, I misspoke. They pay attention to the second part and neglect the first part. He has cleared away your enemies, right? And so people think of the Messiah as this dread warrior that's going to come and he's going to whoop the Romans and he's going to restore the kingdom. He's going to bring the kingdom back. In fact, as late as after Jesus' resurrection, before the day of Pentecost, it might even be on the day of Pentecost, but it's found in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples asked Jesus, so when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? You see, they are still looking for this political restoration, for this warrior to free them from oppression, to wipe away their enemies. But of course, what they can't see is that Jesus is already doing that, but not the enemies that they want. Jesus is wiping away the enemy, Satan, their adversary, who oppresses them, who crushes them spiritually, not just politically. And so they neglect the first half of this prophecy that the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. This is exactly what John the Baptist was preaching about before the Messiah, in preparation for the Messiah. In our Gospel passage the Deacon Mark read to us today, we see sharp edges to John the Baptist's word. But indeed, if we look closely, it's good news. Look at Luke chapter 3, verse 7, and then verse 9. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then look at verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, again, how is this good news? How is this good news? It's good news because what's being talked about here by John the Baptist is they're being freed from the enemy, from sin. And that the roots of sin in their hearts, in their souls, is going to be cut down. They are no longer going to be burdened completely and subject to the sin that they have. And notice, how do the people respond? They don't respond to it as, boy, these are harsh words, I'm offended. No, they respond to it with joy. Well, let's be baptized. And then, what should we do? Each group comes to John the Baptist and says, then what shall we do? The warning here is to the Hebrews that think that they're going to escape God's wrath because they're self-righteous. It's those who don't think that they need help that are in trouble. It's those who know that they are sick, the Lord says, that need a doctor. So you see, this great self-righteousness 
is being directed, those that are greatly self-righteous is to those, are those to whom this harsh word is being directed. It's part of the winnowing. If you're offended, then you don't really need Jesus that much. If you're offended by the harsh words, you don't really need Jesus that much. If you don't like John's words here, then perhaps you think too highly of yourself. Remember, what does John continue to say? What are the things that make them self-righteous? Number one, they say to themselves, well, we're the oppressed people of Abraham. And number two, well, there's someone worse than me. Look closer at the text. The devil is using one of his oldest tricks here to block people from repentance. As St. Paul explains to us through our readings in the last sermon series, being a son of Abraham is all about faith, not fleshly lineage. Remember we talked about Romans chapter 4, verse 16? For this, is, for this reason it is by faith, in order that it be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all those descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He goes on to clarify what that means about us being sons of Abraham by faith, both Jews and Gentiles. This is to say that those who act in faith, those who believe and do the work of God, are truly sons of Abraham. Look what John the Baptist says in in today's reading. Verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we, are Ab- we have Abraham as our father. That's not going to get you anywhere. He goes on to say, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. God is able from these stones to, make, to raise up children of Abraham. Do you see, there's self-righteousness and thinking one's identity is going to save them as being sons of Abraham. But there's a second false righteousness here, too. And that's the false righteousness that I think we're very familiar with. It's the self-righteousness that we think we're better, or we're righteous, or we're good, because there's people that are worse than us out there. Now, it sounds silly when it's called out, None of us actually goes around saying, well, I know that my sins are less than your sins, and therefore I'm more righteous. No one overtly says that. But how does it go in our soul? We think to ourselves, we think to ourselves, well, you know, my sin's not that bad. And then we look over, oh yeah, look at that guy. Look at that girl. Their sins are worse. How good I am. Right? Do you see that type of self-righteousness is in the latter part of this reading? Notice, who is it that's coming to repent and be baptized? The tax collectors, the soldiers. The tax collectors, the soldiers. You see, the tax collectors and soldiers are not thought very highly of here. Everyone looks down on them. Even the multitudes look down on them. 
And yet, here they are, first in line, to repent, to be baptized. They're not the religious. They're not the ones that you'd find in synagogue every Sunday. In fact, they're the ones that are usually avoided by people. They're the oppressed, truly, those oppressed in spirit. How does that work today? Well, there's many of us, as I've already said, that buy into the I'm better than Hitler school of ethics. The I'm better than Hitler school of righteousness. I had a professor in college that used to say this. He said, you know, too many of you engage in this ethic, the I'm better than Hitler ethic. And it's just the extreme version of looking at someone else and saying, well, I'm good because that person's worse. You're always going to be able to find someone worse, down to Hitler or worse. So what measure is that of your righteousness? You're looking the wrong way. That mistake pervades the church, friends. There are those who think that because they or someone are either more moral or more oppressed, that they must not be sinful and that therefore their sin should be ignored. Right? So this can work two ways. It can be those who say to themselves, well, you know, this person's not sinful. I'm not sinful because that person's worse than me. But it also can work the other way. We look at the other person and I say, oh, that person is in such terrible situations. They can't possibly be sinful. Right? And yet, what's John's message? Both are sinful and in need of repentance. Still, there's others who, despite being Christians, have forgotten God's grace and begin to think of themselves as above the sort of repentance that John the Baptist thinks of and speaks of. They think to themselves, well, this message of repentance and baptism, that's good for drug addicts. It's good for those sex workers. It's good for those alcoholics. But I'm not one of those. I'm a pretty good person. But there's a clear message here. And it's the confrontational message of the gospel, which is good news. Repent. Turn from your sin. Believe in the Messiah who is here. No matter what your background is. No matter how good you think yourself or how bad you think yourself. Repent 